that there will be very little uh, Thanksgiving that takes place this holiday. I'm not really too worried about that culturally as I am, I fear that many of us Christians won't be doing much different. That our Thanksgiving is pretty much Ma and Pa Kettle-like as well. And so I want to uh, take you to the biblical teaching on Thanksgiving and to look at what that should be and encourage you perhaps this Thanksgiving to do things a little differently, uh, things a little more biblically. So the first thing I want to do is talk about the importance of Thanksgiving. Now, by the way, if you're looking at the papers that were handed to you, that's not an outline. And you know, if it were, I would have changed it by now anyway. What it is, is it's a, a, a series of, of uh, principles and truths with biblical texts to uh, hopefully support and illustrate those. So I'm giving those to you as a sort of a start in terms of your Thanksgiving celebration. Those are things that you may want to seriously consider, and they will be things that I deal with here this morning, Lord willing. Why is Thanksgiving important? Well, number one, it's important because it's a command. That ought, that ought to raise it pretty high on our priority list. In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 5, 18. Secondly, failing to give thanks has serious consequences. For example, if you look at Romans chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, Paul writes this. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen because they are understood through what has been made. So people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thoughts and their senseless word, uh, uh, hearts were darkened. It's interesting to me that failure to give thanks to God and acknowledge Him for who He is clouds our thinking. That's what it says. Their minds are darkened. That's pretty serious. Pretty serious business. Uh, if you look with me uh, at Psalm 95, you find a very interesting psalm that is a call to worship. And it's, it's interesting because it sort of splits. Do you notice? It's a call to worship. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Then it talks about creation. The sea is his, for it was he who made it. His hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. This is Israel, not the Gentiles of Romans chapter 1. This is Israel. And then it turns all of a sudden in the last part of chapter, of verse 7. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at, Mas uh, at Meribah and in the day of Massah in the wilderness when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who err in their heart 
and they do not know my ways. Therefore, I swore in my anger, they shall not enter into my rest. What's particularly interesting to me in, in this in this psalm itself is it's not an accusation of Israel for failing to give thanks when they prospered. If you look at a text like Exodus chapter 15, you know, and they've just marched through the Red Sea and the sea has come down and drowned their enemies and, and the, they're all high-fiving each other and saying, Yahoo! God wins! It's not that kind of thanksgiving. It's at a time when they lack. It's a time when they don't have food or water. And it's at that time that they fail to thank God. And for that, God says, He is angry and they will not enter into His rest. I think that Satan really plays his hand at working at our discontent. I, John Marr and I were talking about this, but you think about the Garden of Eden and, and, and you think about all of the, the blessings that God had provided for them there, you know, withholding virtually nothing. And what does Satan do? But rather than say, wow, we ought to praise God for this, he basically creates in their minds the sense that they're missing something. That there's something really better. There's, there's reason for discontent, and discontent is reason for disobedience. And I find that's true many places, sometimes in my life. I think about our Lord Jesus when he was tempted by Satan. Essentially what Satan was suggesting is, where God has you is not really a very good place. I can show you a better way. Cast, uh, call these stones and command that they be made into bread. Uh, worship me and I'll give you all of these kingdoms. Discontent, failure to give thanks is a very, very dangerous thing. Thirdly, thanksgiving creates a mindset that I think is vitally important. It sort of aligns us. I was thinking about some of the electronic devices we have where you have to push a button like between your mouse and your computer and, and they have to talk to each other and say, oh, so you're talking to me at that frequency. And then they get along together from that point on. That's the way Thanksgiving is, I think, with us and God. It sort of gets us reoriented in the way that we ought to be. And I was thinking about this in the light of Hebrews chapter 7 and the story about Abraham and Melchizedek. And do you remember that uh, Abraham had the victory and then Melchizedek comes and Abraham offers to Melchizedek a tithe. And the writer to the Hebrews is making a point. He says, the one who gives the tithe is inferior to the one who receives it, Right? you got a pecking order here. And so what he's saying is the order of Melchizedek is higher than the order of Aaron and that priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood. I would suggest to you the same is true with thanksgiving. The one who gives thanks is inferior, subordinate to the one to whom he gives thanks. So it's like getting it straight. Sometimes I say when I was in prison, and what I mean by that is when I taught school in prison, there were times when uh, some of uh, the inmates lost perspective about who they were with respect to the authorities. 
And one of my favorite men there was a guard named Mr. Look, an ex-army sergeant. And boy, was he tough. And one of the things he used to say was, well, what do you know? I thought that they told me that the guys in the blue shirts told the guys in the brown shirts what to do. Oh, I have a blue shirt. You have a brown shirt. Now we've gotten oriented as to who's in charge. Thanksgiving is that way. Thanksgiving is an acknowledgement of how we relate to God. And fourth, I think this is really critical. Thanksgiving is an acknowledgement of grace. Thanksgiving acknowledges grace. And grace without thanksgiving is almost unthinkable. The only appropriate response to grace is thanksgiving. You can't earn it. You can't earn it. You can't say, I deserve this. How many of you last year, if you happened to be fortunate enough to get a refund check from the IRS, sent a thank you note? Well, you earned it, right? You earned it. It belongs to you. Of course you don't say thank you. But grace requires an appropriate response, and that is thanksgiving. So let's talk about what thanksgiving looks like in the Bible for a few moments. First of all, thanksgiving is an act of worship. We tend to think of it, I think, sometimes as just something we do at the moment, uh, and that's fine. But when you look, especially in the Old Testament, but also in the New, you'll see that thanksgiving is really a worship experience. So you see Psalms like Psalm 95 uh, that we just read a portion of. And you see how the, the whole congregation gathers together. What's fascinating to me, and I must confess that I missed this until I was looking at, at the text for this message. But it's the congregation... And often it refers to the congregation that gathers in the, in the temple or gathers together for worship, for Israel's collective worship. And they'll talk about that. Oh, that I might stand before the assembly and do this. There is that part. Psalm 111, verse 1. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart in the company of the upright and in the assembly. The assumption is that Israel has gathered together for worship and thanksgiving is a part of it and it calls other people to participate. Here's the one that caught me off guard. Psalm 18, verse 49. And I think it occurs something like six times in the uh, in the Psalms. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. Now, I confess, I got that from the New King James Version. It may say in your translation, among the peoples. But it's very clear to me that what is done here is not just thanking God in the midst of other believers. It is praising God in the midst of unbelievers that takes place as well. And I say, therefore, it is evangelistic. And I want to come back to that point, if I can, a little bit later. Thanksgiving in worship very often involves music and, and, uh, and even poetry because the Psalms are that, are they not? The, the Psalms are really a poetic, uh, 
manifestation, expression of thanksgiving before God. So you have music and psalms being a vital part of the thanksgiving experience. For instance, Psalm 147, verse 7. Sing to the Lord with grateful praise. Make music to our God on the harp. I had to get that from the NIV because I hated to see somebody say and praise him with the harp in the sense that somehow there was something else going on. But music is a part of the Thanksgiving experience. That says to me that Thanksgiving is not so much something that you do ad hoc and entirely spontaneously, although believe me, there are times when that's appropriate. Thanksgiving is something which is given a lot of forethought and given a lot of preparation. Now, I think we don't see that as much sometimes as we should. If you were to listen to somebody like Bruce Walkey, he would talk about the way certain psalms, like Psalm 73, is beautifully constructed in a way that shows order and thought. It is very precise, very work-intensive, if you would. I think that we need to work harder at Thanksgiving than what we sometimes do. Secondly, Thanksgiving is God-centered more than self-centered. <laughs> I think so often we give thanks because of what we gain from the experience. And I'm not saying that we should not express thanksgiving for what we gain. What I'm saying is we ought to be more God-centered about it than we are. If blessing comes from God, then it is God who deserves the praise and the thanksgiving. And what I see in the Psalms and elsewhere is, one, thanksgiving for who God is. And secondly, thanksgiving for what God does. And so you see things like Psalm 106, verse 1. Praise the Lord, O give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. So there it's the attributes of God, the character of God, the goodness of God, His grace and mercy that is focused on. But it's often in God's actions that we see those things manifested. Psalm 9, verse 1. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonders. So often in the Psalms, what you see is the psalmist comes after an experience where God has brought blessing and he expresses what God has done and gives praise to God for who he is before the peoples and invites the people to participate with him in that worship experience. Thanksgiving focuses on spiritual blessings, I think more than material blessings. This Thanksgiving, I wonder how many people in their cultural experience are, are really going to think about the spiritual blessings that God has bestowed. We tend to give thanks when we're, so to speak, fat and sassy. And the reality is, that's probably the time in our lives where we're least inclined to really thank God as we should. So the spiritual blessings are important. Listen to this psalm, Psalm 107, 8 and 9. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. For he has satisfied the thirsty soul 
and the hungry soul he has filled with what is good. Spiritual blessing. And foremost among those would be salvation, would it not? You want to think about what we would praise God for most in the spiritual blessing category would be our salvation. So in Psalm 18, verse 46, the Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be the God of my salvation. Now, if you do a search on the English word salvation, I happen to do it in the NASB, 61 times, 61 times in Psalms, the word salvation occurs. Now, I have to say to you what I would say in the New Testament as well, and that is salvation is a word that is broader than just our salvation through faith in Christ and gaining eternity and the forgiveness of sins. So sometimes in the New Testament, somebody who's a leper or whatever will say, save me, and what they mean is deliver me. So there is a broader sense of deliverance. God is the great deliverer. He's the great Savior. But foremost amongst His deliverances is the deliverance spiritually that we have from the bondage of sin and its consequences. We should give thanks for the spiritual blessings that God gives us in our life. For example, in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. But the other part of that is, and I think something that we don't do much of, maybe I should just say I don't do much of, is the thanksgiving that you see from men like Paul for what God is doing in the lives of others. I mean, think about Thessalonians, for example. 2 Thessalonians 1.3 We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as it is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. And what's interesting about that is his thanksgiving for the way in which they have grown often morphs into petition for continued growth and work in their lives. I think that's probably an area we need to work on. Looking around us and seeing the wonderful things that God is doing in the lives of others and thanking God for that work. For example, I heard my fellow elders this morning when we were praying thanking God for the the uh, service we had last night and specifically thanking God for the way in which he used young people to facilitate that service. That's cause for thanksgiving. And we ought to do it because it's right and because Paul did it. Thanksgiving is, is ongoing and continual. I think we, uh, we take the pot kettle approach. Much obliged, tip the hat, and move on. But what you see in, in the scriptures is it's really more of an attitude than it is just an action. In other words, it is a mindset that we have, a, a mindset of gratitude, acknowledgement of God's activity, and thankfulness for it. Psalm 86, 12. I will give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify your name forever. By the way, why is the thanksgiving of, of some of, of those people recorded in the Psalms? It is recorded in the Psalms so that we can keep giving thanks. 
Is it not? And then I was looking over at Revelation. And you have to say, Thanksgiving is eternal. Heaven is going to be a time when we thank and praise God for what He has done historically, and in particular, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanksgiving is an eternal event. And if you want to look at it that way, this is just rehearsal for what is going to go on for all of eternity. And my personal opinion is it'll take all of eternity for us to begin to express all that God is and all that God has done. I don't think that's going to be a soundbite experience. Well, Thanksgiving should accompany our petitions. And and you can see uh, that taking place, for example, when Paul says, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. One of the things that you see in the Psalms is sometimes the psalmist is uh, singing a version of nobody knows the trouble I've seen. It's, it's not things are going so well, they're not going well. But somewhere in that psalm, the psalmist turns around in attitude and says to God, I know who you are, I know what you've promised, and therefore I praise you for what you will do. Not what has yet been done so far as that initial problem is concerned. Here's one in Psalm 9, 13 and 14. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. You who lift me up from the gates of death. That I may tell of all your praises. That in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. One of the things that happens in the Psalms and in the history of Israel is people pray that God will act so that they can praise Him with thanksgiving in the gathered assembly. And that indeed is what we see taking place. I think that thanksgiving sets the stage for petition. As we thank God for who He is, as we thank Him for His attributes, His faithfulness, uh, His love, His grace, His mercy, His loving kindness... And as we thank Him for His character, that He is a just God, and so on, then it is easy to to move from that to say, and God, I petition that in this circumstance, You will act according to who You are. So that praising God, thanking God for who He is, is the foundation, as it were, for moving ahead to other petitions. And this one, I think, is probably the the tougher piece. Thanksgiving is not to be restricted to the good times. I think that's where we all come from. When we're really doing well, then we can thank God for our prosperity and our health and whatever. And you remember Asaph, the psalmist in Psalm 73, basically said, well, I really had a problem with you, God, because I found that the wicked were doing better on the prosperity side and I was doing better on the pain side. And I said to myself, what in the world's going on here? Until he came to realize that those who were very affluent and successful and comfortable and fat and sassy, they basically said, where's God? He doesn't care. And he said, I realized that you were with me. You drew near to me. That you are with me now and you will be with me through all eternity. 
And looking at it through those eyes, through that lens, he can say, I am grateful. And isn't it interesting the way you watch that in the Psalms themselves? By the way, the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, isn't that really what it's about? Those people who are in the hall of faith are people who did not receive the promises. They didn't get what they were promised and what they were looking for, but they looked forward to that and they believed that God was going to give it. So that they manifested faith by believing in what God would do, and I'm sure giving thanks for that as well. Psalm uh, 13, verses 1 through 6. Here's the lament. Here's the circumstance from which the psalmist writes, and notice the change of heart and words. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death, and my enemy may say, I have overcome him. And my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. See, that's really faith. You cannot separate, in my opinion, you cannot separate thanksgiving from faith in several ways. When you look at the blessings that God has bestowed on you, the temptation is for you, for me, to say, I did that. Right? To take credit for the blessings that God has bestowed. It takes faith to say, it wasn't me. These blessings come from God. When you come to situations, I'm thinking now of uh, Jacob, my, my friend, my colleague in the scriptures. Remember when he learns that his, uh, his son has been held captive and that, uh, now they want Benjamin to come as well, that the, this fellow down there wants uh, uh, Benjamin to come. And he says, all these things are against me. What a great place for him to have had faith. But in the middle of his tribulation, he does not have the faith that the psalmist has of saying, I know who God is and I know what his promise is and he's going to fulfill that. Well, the other thing that faith does, I think, is when you look at Exodus chapter 15, there you see Israel praising God for the deliverance which he has brought about through the, through the defeat and the death of, of uh, all of those Egyptian soldiers. But they don't stop there. Faith looks ahead and says, I know that because of what God has done, it's going to scare the willies out of those people up there in Canaan. I know because of the deliverance he has brought, I am assured that he will fulfill his promise and bring us into the land so that faith on the basis of what God has done looks forward to what God will do. We're talking about thanksgiving in the midst of circumstances that seem contrary to it. And so I have to say one word about the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel flies in the face of biblical and theological reality. 
Prosperity gospel says, in essence, if you have enough faith, God will heal you of your cancer or deliver you from whatever this circumstance is. If you have enough faith, God will make you prosperous. How do you come to terms with that when you look at the fact that God may use adversity in the life of His children to draw them close to Himself? So the sad part of it is, in the midst of God working through adversity, when our hearts like the heart of Asaph ought to be drawn to God, we're really wondering whether God is there and whether He cares. And we're wondering about our own faith. We now doubt our faith because we're told if your faith, faith were great enough, you wouldn't be in the circumstance you are. So I'm wondering, am I okay with God? And I'm wondering if God is okay. That flies in the face of that. And no wonder you can't read these verses as a prosperity believer. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Psalm 119.71 I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Faith recognizes the goodness of God in the midst of adversity. And it trusts God to remove that adversity in His good time. Point seven, I think, if I'm counting right. And seven's always a good number to end on. Thanksgiving is evangelism. When I read those verses and I, and I saw here is, uh, here are the psalmists talking about thanking God in the great congregation, I'm saying to myself, okay, well, that's church, so to speak, for us, right? That's thanking God in church. What about amongst the Gentiles? It seems to me that it's clear that the one who really rejoices in who God is and what God has done can't keep quiet about it. So often we try to help people witness by making them feel guilty because they're not. And what I see is it's gratitude. It's thanksgiving. When I look in Acts chapter 8 and I see these people, the saints who are cleared out of Jerusalem because of the stoning of Stephen, and I see them going out and then I see them in chapter 11 and some of them were going about, as the text says, speaking the word to only the Jews. But there were some rebels who were so grateful to what for what God had done that they were speaking to the Gentiles as well. Now, do you think those guys got together and said, wow, you know, we got the Great Commission to do. We, we, we got to figure out how to get this thing out. They were so grateful for God in their lives, they just couldn't keep quiet. It was that simple. They didn't have to learn, you know, all kinds of techniques or whatever. They just overflowed with gratitude and they told unbelievers about the goodness of God. So when you look then in Acts chapter 4, and you see Peter and John who have been drugged before the authorities. And they've been warned not to preach any longer in the name of the Lord Jesus. Don't you love what happens when they go back and they get together with their fellow believers? I love that text. Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse uh, 23. And when they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord 
And they said, oh, Lord, it is thou who didst make the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David did say, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats. And notice what it doesn't say. Take away the persecution. Take away the pain. It says... And grant that thy servants may speak the word with all confidence. And thou dost, as, while thou dost extend thy hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of the, of uh, thy holy servant Jesus. And when they prayed this, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. The church went out joyfully with thanksgiving for suffering. And you know from reading further in Acts what takes place. I had listed earlier Acts chapter 16 verses 19 through 34 as the text for today. And I chose to go with Psalm 100 to make this passage my example. But here what you have is the story, remember, of of Paul and Silas. And they go to Philippi and they go to this place of prayer. And there they find a a few women uh, believers gathered but there is this fortune teller that is among them and she goes around saying, in effect, the truth, but these are the servants of the Most High God. Paul finally gets exasperated enough to cast the demon out of her and she was a small business enterprise and her owners weren't too happy. Their stock went way down very quickly. And so they orchestrated the the beating of Paul and Silas and their imprisonment. And what I love is the story that when they're there in prison, they're singing songs of praise to God. They're giving thanks while while the, 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 the stripes and the wounds are there oozing on their bodies. They are giving thanks to God. And it says, and the prisoners were listening. You want to find how to get people's attention with the gospel? Praise God when all of your external circumstances say that you shouldn't. Now, I know the earthquake helped a little. I, I'm not downplaying that. But the reality is, the, the, you know, the, 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 the jailer says, what must I do to be saved? He understood that something spiritual was going on in that place, and he wanted a piece of it. And I would say to you, I think that may be the way that God evangelistically impacts our community is as the persecution ramps up, the question is, are we going to give thanks or are we going to just shrivel up in some way? If we give thanks and we pray for boldness, I believe that God will bring about some amazing things. So I have a challenge for you. First of all, I have a challenge for anyone who may be here who is outside of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't come to the prosperous. He didn't come to the comfortable. They were reading the Scriptures last night, and I said amen to myself. When when Jesus was asked, why are you spending your time with these sinners? 
Jesus said, because the doctor comes to heal the sick. In Luke's gospel in chapter 6, Jesus says this, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Now that's an interesting thought. And the only way that could be true is for people who are hungry and poor and needy turn to Jesus and recognize their absolute need for something and someone beyond themselves. That's the good news of the gospel. It's not the gospel for the, for the, uh, well, I won't, I better not say it, the country club bunch. It's the gospel for people who are just downright needy. And you remember in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, that's so that God gets the glory. The weak things, the foolish things of this world, that's what gives God the glory. I'd like to encourage you to make this Thanksgiving maybe a more biblical celebration. And I'd especially like you to give thought for ways in which God has graced you through affliction and adversity. Jeanette said to me this week, not really knowing at that point where I was going, she said, I've come to see that my experience with my mother was the grace of God. Her mother and her father divorced, and they, the kids, went to live in a house where the new father made them eat in a separate room. He didn't care about them at all. And then one day, her mother, who ran an elevator, stepped into an empty elevator shaft and plunged to her death. And all of a sudden, Jeanette and her sisters had to move in with her father and a mother who wasn't eager to have them. The next week, her father was transferred to Bremerton, Washington, by the way, not far from Shelton, where I come from, transferred to Bremerton, and there God placed her in a school in a classroom between two Christian young ladies who led her to faith in Jesus Christ. And Jeanette said, I realized that in all the heartache that I went through, God was leading me to himself. We talked this morning briefly about the fact that when we lost our son, God was good to us. And that was a turning point in our lives. I would challenge you as you come to the Thanksgiving season, not just to think about the good things that have happened to you in this past year or these past years. Think about those things that you would consider less than pleasant. And meditate upon the fact that God has brought those things into your life for good. And ponder what that means and give thanks to Him for that. The other thing I want to say is, I think that Thanksgiving should be public. We're, we're talking as elders about maybe having an occasion where we actually have a Thanksgiving gathering where testimonies can be given by, by those who are gathered as to what God has done and why we can be thankful. But one thing I would say in particular is every week in this church, when we gather around the Lord's table, we have the opportunity for thanksgiving. And sometimes, praise God, it happens. But I would say our, our inclination, our predisposition is to teach, not to thank. And I'm not, I'm not at all opposed to teaching. But it seems to me that one of the great encouragements for our lives is to hear what God is doing in the lives of others. Thanksgiving, by its very nature, 
needs to be public. And I would say, it isn't just in these walls. Ask God how you can give thanks to Him amongst the Gentiles, so to speak. And that God may use your thankful spirit and your thankful words as a way of drawing others to Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all that you have done. I pray that as we come to this Thanksgiving holiday, we might come to it differently than those in our culture. May we thank you not only for those blessings, material and spiritual, that you have poured out upon us, but I pray that we might thank you for those things that have come our way from your hand that were not pleasant, but drew us near to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.